making your way back to your seats. And as you do, if, you're open, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We are, we're continuing on in our series, The Seven Churches uh, in Revelation, where we're just walking through Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and taking a look at, at each of these churches and what the Lord has to say to them. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the church in Pergamum. Let me again just welcome you. It's good to see you all this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at Newbreed Church. Glad that you're here. Uh, I want to invite you, hopefully you've arrived, if you'll stand as we read God's Word together. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 17. Hear the Word of the Lord. It says, Write to the church of the angel in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this morning, I want to I tag this sermon, don't compromise because Jesus is better. Don't compromise because Jesus is better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. <clears throat> God, I pray that we would, we would be ready to hear from you, that the Spirit would be working in our hearts and our minds, Lord. God, I pray that you will give me a physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Don't compromise, because Jesus is better. You know, in 2021, so last year and this year of 2022, we experienced we experienced something rather rare. No, I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the Olympics. We had the summer and the winter Olympics back to back. And that typically doesn't happen because typically the Olympics are spaced out about two years apart. But because of the pandemic, the summer games were pushed to 2021 and the winter games were held this year in 2022. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love the Olympics. I love them. I don't know why, but I just get into them. A couple years back, NBC did the greatest thing that's ever been done, is that they put on their app every Olympic event that took place, and they left it up for months. And I can tell you, I think it was the, the 16 games, might have been the 12 games, I watched every minute of every event of the summer game. There are some summer Olympic games that you probably don't even know exist, but I watched them. I watched them all. I was in it to win it. I enjoy the winter games, but I'm more of a, a summer guy. 
Now, I know that some of you may not get as hyped about the Olympics as others, but one thing that I've noticed is that even for people who don't tend to really get into sporting events or get into the Olympics, there's one thing regarding the Olympics that most people want to watch. It's the opening ceremony. It's turned into, the opening ceremony has turned into quite an amazing spectacle. It's as if whatever nation hosts it has to outdo the nation before. But, but one consistent theme is that the, the opening ceremony always culminates with the lighting of the Olympic torch. Now me being the nerd that I am, I was curious about where the tradition of the Olympic torch began. Why did this thing start? So I started digging into it because that's what nerds do. They look at the history of things. I wanted to know where this idea came from. Now, a lot of people just trace it back to the early 1900s when it was first introduced, but that, that wasn't necessarily the inspiration or the origins, and it took a little digging, but it turns out that one of the inspirations for the lighting of the torch, the torch actually came from one of the ancient Greek games. And in the in the Panthenaic Games in ancient Greece, there was something called a torch relay. And it was a race, so it, it, it had religious undertones to it, but it was a race where the runners had to carry a torch from one sacred place to another sacred place. And the first person to carry the torch from one sacred place to the other sacred place won the race. But there was a catch. The goal was not simply to be the first person to make it to that second sacred place. You see, the goal was to make it to the end of the race, but to still have your torch be lit when you got there. And I'm going to tell you, I've been holding on to this one. As I was reading this history, the Holy Spirit just started preaching to me. It was reminding me that like that race in ancient Greece, the goal of the Christian life is not simply to make it to the end. I think we can get confused into thinking that, that this world is full of troubles, trials, and woes, and so the faithful thing to do is to put your head down, grit your teeth, just push through and make it to the end no matter what. But the goal of the Christian life is not simply to make it to the end. The goal is to run, and despite wind and rain, despite the terrain and fierce enemies, despite all the unexpected twists and turns, to run and make it to the end with that flame of faith still very much burning. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all, all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way as to win the prize. The goal is not just to make it to the end. In other words, we want to run this race of life with purpose and focus, keeping a close watch on our faith. And in our text this morning, what we see with the church of Pergamum is one of the great dangers that can extinguish that flame of faith. Compromise. Compromise. So let's, let's jump right in. We begin there. We pick up in verse 12. And in verse 12, we read, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, a few things we learn here at the very beginning in verse 12. Once again, we know that Jesus is identifying himself as the author of this letter. So Jesus is the one who's writing this letter. Well, how do we know this? We can go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus is being described in Revelation chapter 1 and, and verse 16 says he had 
the seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So, so Jesus is the one writing this, but the description of the double-edged sword points us to Jesus. But, but have you noticed that there are a lot of descriptions in Revelation chapter 1. There are a lot of things that describe Jesus. And at the beginning of each of the letters, it's as if Jesus is picking one of them to describe himself to each particular church. But have you noticed that it always seems to be for a reason? There's a reason that Jesus takes this mark of his identity and says it the way he does to address a particular church. And so the question is, why would Jesus use the double-edged sword to describe himself at the beginning of his letter to Pergamum? And, and, and beyond that, what is the sword? Well, let me, let me try to show you. We get some indication as to what the sword refers to in verse 16. So in Revelation 2, 16, when Jesus says, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And so the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth refers to his very words. And this shouldn't shock us. We see pictures of this in scripture in Isaiah 49, verse 2. It says, he made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow, he hid me in his quiver. Or the one that probably most of us know, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the sword, the weapon that Jesus wields as he describes himself, that weapon is his very words. Now we'll come back and flesh that out a little bit more in just a bit. But the question is, why would Jesus pick this description when writing to the church in Pergamum? Well, to answer that question, we have to, we have to learn a little bit about Pergamum. So Pergamum, by all respects, you know, up until this point, we've talked about some pretty great cities in the ancient Near East. Ephesus was grand, right? Smyrna was grand. But Pergamum, Pergamum not so much. By all respects, it was not a great city. It wasn't until about 40 years after this was written when it would even be important to Rome. It was located about 15 miles inland, so it wasn't a cultural hub. It didn't serve as a great, a great city for trade or for commerce. There wasn't a lot going on, but one thing it did have was a library, actually one of the greatest libraries at the time. Just to give you an idea, when John was writing this, the library in Pergamum would have had over 200,000 parchment scrolls in it. In fact, Pergamum's library was so grand that our word for parchment actually comes from the name Pergamum. So one thing that Pergamum could boast about was their extensive library, all the words that were written down, all the access to knowledge that was available to them. And what Jesus says when he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword is it's Jesus saying, you, you think that you have the words that can instruct, but, but I have words that penetrate as far as the separation of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. I am able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of someone's heart. 
And so at the beginning, once again, Jesus reminds his church with all the greatness of the world, with all the greatness of the cities, with the greatness of their library and their knowledge, he's reminding them once again that Jesus is greater. It's almost as if one of the key lessons from the seven churches that Jesus genuinely wants his people to get is he genuinely wants his people to believe that he is better. Shocking, right? It's almost as if he wants his people to understand that as great as the things of this world appear to be, as strong as the cities want to appear, as marvelous as man's creation might be, Jesus is greater. And no, 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 I I don't want this to get lost on you because we've said it every week and you're like, yes, I get it. Jesus is greater. But what what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tell somebody right now in this room who is believing that if you just had that promotion, you'd have all you need. That if you just had that relationship you've been praying for, you would have all that you need. If you were just a little bit more healthy or a little stronger or a little younger or a little older, then you would have all that you need. But what Jesus is intentionally reminding us and the churches is that if you have nothing else but you have me, if you are found in me and I am found in you, you truly have all that you need because I am greater. You see, the problem for many of us may not be all the things that we recognize that we don't have. The problem may be that we don't recognize and value the thing that we do have. But I want you to see this. There were some in the church who did get it. Because look at what what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, I know where you live. Where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and you did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. So a few things about this this verse, a few things that this verse teaches us. First, we learn actually a little bit more about the city of Pergamum. And it's not the best. Jesus says that the church in Pergamum dwells in the city where Satan's throne is. That's a pretty harsh indictment of a place from Jesus. That where you are serving, where you are planted, you are in the city where Satan's throne is. Now, most likely, this was a reference to the idolatry of the city. So Pergamum was a city in the ancient Near East where Satan had a foothold. Don't get it confused. There are still places where Satan just has a foothold. And Pergamum was one of them. As as one commentator, Leon Morris, notes, he says that Satan exercised some sway there. He had a throne there. Some see an allusion to the serpent, the symbol of Asclepius, which which was everywhere in Pergamum, while the emblem symbolized healing to the Pergamines. It stood for evil for biblically instructed Christians. So it's been noted about Pergamum, how many people would travel to Pergamum in the ancient world to be healed by that false god Asclepius. So let me just tell you how much of a bearing that this city had. Do you know the current day medical symbol? Chris, you know, we got some doctors in here. It's two serpents around a staff with wings that comes from Pergamum. There were serpents everywhere. But the problem wasn't just there were serpents. The problem was that the people worshipped these as gods. You know, interesting enough, this is a fun fact for you. You know the Galen School of Nursing that's here 
in Louisville. It's named after the second greatest medical mind in the ancient time, Galen from Pergamum. You know, similarly, a little more information about this, the city. Dr. Tom Schreiner notes that most in the Greco world, including those in Pergamum, especially those in Pergamum, worshipped a whole host of gods. They were synchristic in their understanding. Basically, they would worship whatever god was before them, whatever god they thought would meet their need. And so Pergamum, what Jesus is identifying is that this was a hard place to be a Christian. This was a hub of idolatry. On top of that, Pergamum was known to be a place for emperor worship. Not just, oh, we like Rome, but they worshipped the emperor as God. So on top of worshipping false gods, they also worshipped Rome in a religious manner. So what Jesus is trying to paint a picture of when he says to them, listen, you've kept the faith, you've held on to it, you've been willing to suffer in a place where Satan's throne is. He's saying that you are in a city that is filled with idolatry. It is a place where Satan's throne dwells. But check this, in the midst of all of that, the church was holding on to their faith. They were holding on to their faith. He says, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. In other words, there were Christians in Pergamum who refused to recognize the gods of this world. They refused to worship any god other than the true God. They refused to bend to the cultural pressure and to worship Rome as if they were gods. But Jesus wants us to know, those of us who are reading it later on, this wasn't a walk in the park for them. Look at what Jesus says. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So where Satan's throne was in this city of Pergamum, they were literally killing Christians there now we don't know much about Antipas it's the only time he's ever mentioned in scripture the Bible doesn't ever talk about him again but the legend has it that Antipas stood firm for his faith and was put alive in a, in a bronze bowl you know those big bowls set above a fire and was burned alive inside of it we don't know if that's truth sometimes those legends didn't come out of nowhere but what we do know is that Antipas, a member of the church in Pergamum, was willing to hold fast to Jesus even though it cost him his life. He was willing to suffer. And I, I know, church, please hear me, I know we've talked about suffering with, with some of these other letters, but, but I do want to just push in here a little bit more. We as Christians, we have to understand our relationship to suffering when it comes to the Christian life. I, I really want you to hear this. We have to understand how we relate to it because for the Christian, suffering for the sake of the gospel, please hear me, it is not something that may happen. It is something that should be happening. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about the suffering that takes place simply because we live in a broken world. I'm not talking about sickness. I'm not talking about, uh, about loss that everyone experiences. I'm not talking about those hard days and those rough seasons that believers and unbelievers face. That's just from living in a broken world. I'm talking about the suffering that comes explicitly because we say, yes, I will follow Jesus. Now, here's where I, I suspect we often get it wrong. See, we read passages of Scripture like this about Antipas, some of the other letters that we've heard, and, and, and we'll say things like, well, if I ever face persecution like that, I'll be ready. I'll be faithful. But the problem comes in that we're not asking the question, why am I not being persecuted right now? Because the more I read Scripture, 
the more I'm convinced that the persecution that those like Antipas faced is not meant to be the picture of the exceptional Christian life. It's the picture of the ordinary Christian life. I mean, I mean, think about this. We can gloss over this and not give it two thoughts, but <clears throat> consider what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29 when he's speaking explicitly about living a life worthy of the gospel, about walking in a worthy manner. Listen to this. Philippians 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. See, we like the believe in him part. Yep, God granted it to me to believe in Christ. Praise God, he's sovereign, that's good. And we just ignore that second part. But also, he granted it for you to suffer for him. I want you to catch that. Jesus has granted us two things in salvation. First, to believe in him. And second, to suffer for him. Guaranteed, it's what he called us to. They are intimately linked together. The evidence of faithfulness Hear me, the evidence of faithfulness is not that you are willing to suffer for Jesus. The evidence of your faithfulness is that you are suffering for Jesus. Now listen, I'm not trying to tell anybody that they should desire persecution. I'm not telling you to go out there and look for persecution. All I'm saying is, is that it appears to me that persecution of some kind will always follow faithfulness. Persecution of some kind will always follow faithfulness. And make no mistake, we may not live in Pergamum, but there are not any less idols people are worshiping today than they were back then. There there are just as many idols in our day and age. Our world world is full of idolatry. It's full of people who will not tolerate Christians calling their idolatry idolatry. So the question then is, why are we not suffering if that is the case? And the answer to that is perhaps, perhaps we've compromised and we're not aware of it. We've compromised and we're not aware of it. Compromise appears to be what happened in Pergamum. Look at verse 13. So after praising the faithfulness of many, Jesus says this. I think it's actually verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Again, scary words from Jesus. Like, yep, you, you, there, are, there are some in the church who have been faithful. They're grinding it out for the gospel. They're willing to suffer. Some have given their lives. But I have a few things against you, church. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. I don't even have time to get into the fact that God holds the whole church accountable for the sum. Do with that as you will. That'll be part two one day down the road. But what Jesus basically says is that there are some in the church, not all, Because there are some who are faithful, but there are some who have compromised. They are giving into the culture. They're giving into idolatry. And in this case, they're explicitly giving into sexual immorality. But how Jesus communicates this is interesting. He doesn't just say they've given into idols. They've, They've committed sexual immorality. He says that they hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block. You know what he's talking about, don't you? 
Do you remember <clears throat> Balaam and Balak back in Numbers 22 and 23? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. You, you, can, you can nod. I mean, at the very least, you can nod. Well, let me, let me remind you what happened. So, so Balaam was a prophet for hire back in the day. He had a reputation. People from all over would hire him. It wasn't just Israel that would hire him. Israel actually didn't ever hire him. Pagan nations would hire him. He was a prophet for hire, but he had a reputation. When he blessed somebody, they were blessed. And when he cursed somebody, they were cursed. And so the Moabite king, Balak, he has a problem. At least he thinks he does. He sees that the Israelites are at his doorstep. They're right around Moab. There's a lot of them that just came out of Egypt, whole host of them. And so Balak is fearful because of how vast their numbers are. And he knows that if the Israelites attack Moab, they win. There's too many of them. And so what the king does is he sends his officials to go find Balaam, this prophet for hire. And the reason is because the king wants Balaam to curse the Israelites a specific curse. He wants them to curse them so that when Moab goes to fight them, they won't be able, Israel won't be able to win. But there's a problem, you see, because God ends up talking to Balaam. And God says to him, Balaam, don't even bother cursing them. It won't work. You might have a reputation. When you bless people, they're blessed. When you curse people, they're cursed. But God says it won't work. Why won't it work? Because God says Israel has my blessing. And it doesn't matter how good you think you are at blessing and cursing. If I bless them, they are blessed. And no one will take away that blessing. So ultimately, Balaam has to go tell the king, I can't do it. The king says, why not? He says, you'll never believe it. The God of Israel talked to me. What did he say? Don't, don't curse them. It won't work. And Balaam wants to keep his reputation up. So he says, I can't curse them. But there is one thing that Balaam does know. He knows that if he can't remove the blessing himself, then he'll just get the Israelite people to remove the blessing for themselves. How? By introducing them to Moabite women. And listen to what Numbers 25 verses 1 through 3 says. It says, while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people, Israel, began to prostitute themselves with the, Moab, with the women of Moab. So, so check this out. This isn't an indictment on the women of Moab. The people of God sold themselves out. They compromised their faith. And look at what happens. It says the women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods and the people of Israel. They ate and they bowed and worshiped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. They compromised. They compromised by worshiping other gods. They compromised by participating in sexual immorality. And here's what I want you to see. This is, this is a very significant lesson for us. I want you to see the danger of compromise, but the beauty of God's blessing. God's blessing on your life is so secure that no external force can take it away from you. Praise God. God's blessing on your life in Christ Jesus, the reward of your faith, is so secure that no external force can take it away from you. So let me get real practical. Satan is indeed a lion prowling around looking for someone he can devour. But here's the good news for those of you in Christ. On his own, Satan cannot devour you. 
Satan cannot get you to do it. You've heard it today. Satan, the devil made me do it. That's kind of the comment. Well, the devil made me do it. If you're a Christian, the devil didn't make you do anything. He, he is seeking someone to devour, but Satan knows at the end of the day, his power is not greater than God's blessing. He might be strong, but God is stronger. Sometimes we give Satan too much credit. Satan cannot destroy you. Satan does not have the power within himself to make you a Christian fall. But this is where we have to be careful. Satan knows this as well. But he also knows that he doesn't have to have the power to destroy you. He just needs to get you to destroy yourself. He just needs to convince you that compromising isn't that big of a deal. He just needs to convince you that you can love the world and love Jesus too. He just needs to convince you that maybe, just maybe, what God says is not best or, or that what God says is best isn't. That maybe Jesus isn't the greatest treasure. Yeah, you're sure. He's great. He's a good treasure. But is he the greatest treasure? Is he the only treasure? And if Satan can convince you to compromise, he gets to sit back and watch you destroy yourself. And this is exactly what's happening in Pergamum. They were participating in the sacrifices to other gods. They compromised on sexual purity. Now here's the thing. It does not mean that they weren't trying to still claim their Christian identity. It appears as if they were. It doesn't say that they didn't value Jesus. They simply bent to the culture in these areas. And what I want you to understand, the reason this is so prevalent for us today is that our culture is not that distant from Pergamum. Yeah, maybe in time, but not in practice. We too have idols that we are tempted to worship in addition to Jesus. We want to worship Jesus and worship our job. We want to worship Jesus and worship our comfort. We want to worship Jesus and our political party. We want to worship Jesus and our culture and preferences. There are a whole host of issues where if we are not careful, we can compromise. And like Pergamum, we live in a culture that is bending in particular areas. Specifically, the area of sexual immorality. That was an issue for Pergamum. That's an issue for the church today. I mean, right now, I'm, I'm going to dive in. We're going to talk about it. Right now, according to Pew Research, seven out of ten Catholics believe that same-sex marriage is morally acceptable. Similar jumps have occurred. It wasn't always seven to ten in, of ten in Catholics. But similar jumps have occurred among mainline Protestants from 56% to 66%. Orthodox Christians from 48% to 62%. And members of the historically black Protestant tradition from 39% to 51%. Even in more conservative religious circles, like the good old Southern Baptist Convention, acceptance of homosexuality has jumped from 25% to 40%. But it's not just that issue. I'm not just trying to harp on homosexuality. In America, nearly 60% of professing believers believe that sex before marriage is sometimes or always acceptable based on God's word. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, a lot of people in America claim to be Christians, but they don't even go to church. Fair enough. 45% of Christians who are consistently and actively involved in their local church believe that sex outside of marriage is sometimes or always permissible. 
My point is not to argue over statistics, but to say two things. The church has to reclaim its prophetic voice. The church has to be willing to love people enough where they are while simultaneously calling sin, sin. We cannot bend. We cannot break on the issues that God has been clear about. And sometimes, sometimes our silence is our compromise. But listen, I'm not just saying run around and point out everybody's sin. That doesn't do anybody good. But point out their sin and show them how Jesus has a better way. That Jesus, when he says something is out of bounds, it's because he knows what's best. When he says something is in bounds, it's because he knows what is best. But the option we don't have is to be silenced. We are called to be the prophetic people of God who lovingly call sin, sin, and show the beautiful majesty of the gospel. You don't have to believe what the culture believes to compromise. You just have to be quiet. But the second reason I bring this up is because we have to realize that Jesus will not compromise. He will not bend. Look at verse 16. He says, in light of all of this, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He is talking to the church. Repent or I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus lets the church know two things in Pergamum. First, there is an opportunity to repent. That's the grace of God. He says, listen, I mean, listen, Jesus wants people to trust in him. Jesus is not like waiting around being like, please fall, please fall, please fall. Yes, the double-edged sword. That's not him. Right? 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that he doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This includes the church in Pergamum. He says, repent, turn from the world and trust me. Trust that my way is better. Trust that my grace is sufficient. Trust that any fleeting pleasure of this world pales in comparison to what awaits you. But Jesus also says, otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Again, notice this. Jesus will fight against those who refuse to repent of their sin. And and I just want to be clear with you. It ain't going to be much of a fight. Right? Like this isn't a fight like where those he's fighting against got a shot at beating him. It's not that they're like some underdogs, but they could be the Cinderella story, March Madness, right? No, this is not going to be much of a fight when the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings brings his power to bear, there is no resistance. But again, notice what he fights with. The sword of his mouth. Man, if that ain't our Savior, I'm trying to tell you, Jesus didn't need to swing his fist. He doesn't need to kick his legs. He opens his mouth and enemies fall. What hope that should give us as Christians too. Like our Savior is that strong that he speaks and enemies topple. But he can also speak and life can form. Jesus' weapon will be his word. But again, think about the weight of that. That means that the word of God will either do one of two things. The word of God will either condemn us or it will be our hope. Because remember, yes, 
The words of his mouth are a weapon against those who rebel. But remember what Peter said when Jesus asked his disciples, are you going to go away from me? And Peter looks at me and says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So the same words that destroy are the same words that redeem. But here in Revelation 2, his words are his weapon. And what this reminds us of is that God's word will always do something. Now, now watch this. For the unbeliever, the word of God is their destruction. But for the believer, the word of God is their greatest hope. And so let's try to apply that truth, right? What that tells us is that there is no one, there is no one who can encounter the word of God and stay the same. What that tells us is that there is power in God's word. And that should still instill in us a confidence, a confidence for two reasons. First, a confidence that we can trust everything that God says in his word. We can trust every promise God makes to us in his word because when he speaks, he's that strong to back it up. He's got the muscle to back up what he says, but it should also instill in us a confidence to declare God's word. Because it reminds us, again, no one encounters the word of God and stays the same. I love singing. I said it this morning. I'm so glad we're a singing church. I love praying with you guys. I love singing with you guys. But there is something about this time when the word of God is proclaimed. There is a reason this takes up the most of our time. Because I'll be honest, singing can sway some hearts, but it's not guaranteed. But when the word of God is preached, something has to happen. Because the word of God never returns void. And so what that tells us is that when we are out there proclaiming the glorious truth of the gospel to your friends, to your family, when you proclaim the grace of God revealed in his word, God is always doing something. It might not always be what you hope for, but it will never return void. And you know what? I've seen it. I've seen it. I've heard about it. I've heard testimony after testimony of those praying mothers and fathers. I've heard testimony of aunties and uncles and siblings and grandparents who continuously spoke the word of of God to that one person that everybody would assume was too far gone. And there is testimony after testimony of the power of God's word doing what nobody thought was possible. But I'll do you one better. I know it to be true because every Christian sitting in this room is a testimony to the power of God's word. Because someone, somewhere spoke to you the truth of God's word and you and your belief in the message of the gospel is a testimony to the power of God's word. We can't forget we're not sitting here saved because we were smart enough to figure it out. We are sitting here redeemed because somebody was bold enough to tell us that our sin separates us from God. You might like it, it might be fun, it might be easy in this world, but it is sending your soul to hell. But God loves you so much that he sent a way for you to be made right with him. God loves you so much that he sent a sacrifice to pay the debt that you owe to die in your place so that you could believe in Jesus and find life and life everlasting. Somebody told you that this Jesus was crucified and three days later was raised from the dead and the Spirit of God worked through the word of God to bring about faith and you are a testimony that the word of God is strong. I know it to be true. I'm a testimony of it this morning. Somebody at some point, I know who they were, told me 
that God loves me in spite of my sin and my rebellion. That he wants me in spite of my sin and my rebellion. And that I can follow him in spite of my sin and my rebellion. And it's not because I figured it out. It's because God loved me that much. And so if God's word is that strong, we can hold God to his promises. And that's good news because look at how Jesus ends this letter in verse 17. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You do know when he says that, he's talking about you. He's talking about those who are listening in on this conversation he's having with the churches. So to anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I'm going to be up front with you. I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea what some of these things promised are. No clue. I'm, I feel like I'm a fairly smart guy. I've, I've done my bachelor's, my master's, working on my doctorate, all in Jesus stuff. I read this and was like, somebody's going to have to help me with this. And I was concerned that I didn't understand it. And so I went to read some commentaries written by some men and women who are a lot smarter than me. And I felt a lot better about myself because they had no definitive answer as to what these things are, in, are, are either. But it's fair, right? It's hidden manna. It's hidden. We don't know what it is. But there were some commentaries that I thought were interesting because there's a lot of speculation as to what they could mean. And I think there's, there might be some validity to some of the speculation. So I can't tell you for sure. But I know that Jesus talks about hidden manna, and we've got a little bit of idea of what manna is because of Exodus chapter 16, when the people of God were in the wilderness, you remember it? They didn't have anything to eat, and so God made manna come down from heaven so that they could eat God provided. God was so faithful that he made manna fall from the sky. Maybe that has something to do with the hidden manna. Now, we're not quite sure what the white stones mean either. Some have assumed, and they may be right, that it refers to a few ancient customs. One custom was when a jury would find a defendant acquitted of all charges. As a priest, they'd give the defendant a white stone. Oh, I like that. I hope that's it. Because it reminds us that Jesus paid our debts and we are no longer guilty because Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. But others think that the white stone might be a reference to a sporting game because in the ancient times, they didn't only give white stones to the innocent. They gave white stones to those who triumphed in the games, who won, because they would be invited to a celebratory banquet at the end of the fight. And so they were given a white stone. I like that too. I hope that's it. Because it reminds us that at the end of this life, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, there awaits a marriage feast and a banquet with the lamb and the bride that will be better than anything you can eat off the altar of an idol. Now, the new name written is very perplexing because no one knows the name. But what we do know is that in ancient custom, a name defined the entirety of a person. So to know someone's name 
was to know who they were and what they stood for. It was to know their character as a person. But here it said that no one knows the name except God. And it may mean that this person now has a new character, a new identity. And while the world doesn't recognize it, God does. But it's tough because we can't be sure of some of these assumptions, whether they're right or not. But it was interesting because there was a lot of discussion among the commentators. And I didn't just look at one or two. I looked at about nine or ten. I never look at nine and ten commentators. I was trying to tell you what this, I wanted you to know what it meant. And it helped me. But what was interesting is there was one thing that every commentator agreed on. It might not have been what they meant, but what everyone knew for sure was that the things that Jesus will give us is better than what we've got here. That the manna is a better feast than anything eaten off the idol or the altar of idols. That the joy is better than any temporal joy that comes from sexual sin. That the Christians in Pergamum may have been known as an oddity, a nuisance, or a problem to be dealt with. But in heaven, they will be known as children of the Most High King. So whatever it was that Jesus is giving and will give is a whole lot better than what we got now. And what Jesus wants the church to see and believe is that faith in Jesus, though it will be hard in this life, will lead to something so much better in the life to come. And so let that encourage us that whatever temporary happiness sin may offer, and let's be honest enough to admit that sin can bring some temporary happiness. If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. But that whatever temporary happiness sin may offer, it doesn't come close to the eternal joy for God's children in glory. And hear me, this is not just wishful thinking from Jesus. He's not just hoping he'll be able to give the hidden manna. He's not just hoping he'll be able to give the white stone with the new name written on it. No, no, no. We know that when Jesus speaks, there is power in his words. He's not hoping it will happen. It's already done. And if all that is true, if there awaits for you, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, a satisfaction beyond comparison, a joy beyond comparison, an identity greater than any that we could create in this life, if all that is true and Jesus is better, don't compromise. Keep your flame burning until you reach the end. Hold fast to the gospel and never let it go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, God, I thank you for these letters to the churches. And I pray, God, that we, New Breed Church, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, I know, I know because I feel it in my own life that there is such a temptation to compromise. There's a temptation to agree with the world And in some of these areas where the world is vocal and they're adamant, and if you don't agree, you get ostracized, God, there is a temptation to just be quiet. But I pray 
that we would have such a confidence in the power of your word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would not stop in proclaiming the truth of your word, believing beyond a shadow of a doubt that your word will never return void because it is strong to do what it intends to do. And God, when we are tempted to compromise, remind us of the hope that we have because of the gospel and the reward that is waiting for us. Remind us, God, that there will be glory after all of this. Help us to hold fast by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.